0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. 1984 by George Orwell Chapter 4 Part 2 Three messages had slid out of the pneumatic tube while Winston was working, but they were simple matters, and he had disposed of them before the two minutes' hate interrupted him. When the hate was over, he returned to his cubicle, took the Newspeak dictionary from the shelf, pushed the speak right to one side, cleaned his spectacles, and settled down to his main job of the morning. Winston's greatest pleasure in life was in his work. Most of it was a tedious routine, but included in it there were also jobs so difficult and intricate that you could lose yourself in them as in the depths of a mathematical problem. Delicate pieces of forgery, in which you had nothing to guide you except your knowledge of the principles of Ingsoc and your estimate of what the party wanted you to say. Winston was good at this kind of thing. On occasion, he had even been entrusted with the rectification of the Times leading articles, which were written entirely in Newspeak. He unrolled the message that he had set aside earlier. It ran. Times 3.12.83 Reporting BB Day Order double-plus-ungood, refs, unpersons, rewrite full-wise, upsub, anti-filing. In old speak or Standard English, this might be rendered. The reporting of Big Brother's order for the day in the Times of December 3, 1983 is extremely unsatisfactory and makes references to non-existent persons. Rewrite it in full and submit your draft to higher authority before filing. Winston read through the offending article. Big Brother's order for the day, it seemed, had been chiefly devoted to praising the work of an organization known as FFCC, which supplied cigarettes and other comforts to the sailors in the floating fortresses. A certain Comrade Withers, a prominent member of the inner party, had been singled out for special mention and awarded a decoration, the Order of Conspicuous Merit, Second Class. Three months later, FFCC had suddenly been dissolved with no reasons given. One could assume that Withers and his associates were now in disgrace, but there had been no report of the matter in the press or on the telescreen. That was to be expected, since it was unusual for political offenders to be put on trial or even publicly denounced. The great purges involving thousands of people, with public trials of traitors and thought criminals who made abject concession of their crimes and were afterwards executed, were special showpieces not occurring oftener than once in a couple of years. More commonly, people who had incurred the displeasure of the party simply disappeared and were never heard of again. We'll never had the smallest clue as to what had happened to them. In some cases, they might not even be dead. Perhaps thirty people personally known to Winston, not counting his parents, had disappeared at one time or another. Winston stroked his nose gently with a paperclip. In the cubicle across the way, comrade Tillotson was still crouching secretively over his speak-right. He raised his head for a moment. Again, the hostile spectacle flash. Winston wondered whether Comrade Tillotson was engaged on the same job as himself. It was perfectly possible. So tricky a piece of work would never be entrusted to a single person. On the other hand, to turn it over to a committee would be to admit openly that an act of fabrication was taking place. Very likely as many as a dozen people were now working away on rival versions of what Big Brother had actually said and presently some master brain in the inner party would select this version or that, would re-edit it and set in motion the complex processes of cross-referencing that would be required, and then the chosen lie would pass into the permanent records and become truth. Winston did not know why Withers had been disgraced. Perhaps it was for corruption or incompetence. Perhaps Big Brother was merely getting rid of a too-popular subordinate— Perhaps Withers or someone close to him had been suspected of heretical tendencies, or perhaps, what was the likeliest of all, the thing had simply happened because purges and vaporizations were a necessary part of the mechanics of government. The only real clue lay in the words, refs, unpersons," which indicated that Withers was already dead. You could not invariably assume this to be the case when people were arrested. Sometimes they were released and allowed to remain at liberty for as much as a year or two years before being executed. Very occasionally, some person whom you had believed dead long since would make a ghostly reappearance at some public trial where he would implicate hundreds of others by his testimony before vanishing, this time forever. Withers, however, was already an unperson. He did not exist. He had never existed. Winston decided that it would not be enough simply to reverse the tendency of Big Brother's speech. It was better to make it deal with something totally unconnected with its original subject. He might turn the speech into the usual denunciation of traitors and thought criminals, but that was a little too obvious, while to invent a victory at the front, or some triumph of overproduction in the ninth three-year plan, might complicate the records too much. What was needed was a piece of pure fantasy. Suddenly there sprang into his mind, ready-made, as it were, the image of a certain comrade Ogilvy who had recently died in battle, in heroic circumstances. There were occasions when Big Brother devoted his order for the day to commemorating some humble, rank-and-file party member whose life and death he held up as an example worthy to be followed. Today he should commemorate Comrade Ogilvie. It was true that there was no such person as Comrade Ogilvie, but a few lines of print and a couple of faked photographs would soon bring him into existence. Winston thought for a moment, then pulled the right towards him and began dictating in Big Brother's familiar style a style at once military and pedantic, and, because of a trick of asking questions and then promptly answering them, "'What lessons do we learn from this fact, comrades?' "'The lesson, which is also one of the fundamental principles of Ing-Sok, that,' etc., etc., "'easy to imitate.'" At the age of three, Comrade Ogilvy had refused all toys except a drum, a submachine gun, and a model helicopter. At six— a year early, by a special relaxation of the rules, he had joined the spies. At nine, he had been a troop leader. At eleven, he had denounced his uncle to the thought police, after overhearing a conversation which appeared to him to have criminal tendencies. At seventeen, he had been a district organizer of the Junior Anti-Sex League. At nineteen, he had designed a hand grenade, which had been adopted by the Ministry of Peace, and which, at its first trial, had killed thirty-one Eurasian prisoners in one burst. At twenty-three, he had perished in action. Pursued by enemy jet planes while flying over the Indian Ocean with important dispatches, he had weighted his body with his machine gun and leapt out of the helicopter into deep water, dispatches and all. An end, said Big Brother, which it was impossible to contemplate without feelings of envy. Big Brother added a few remarks on the purity and single-mindedness of Comrade Ogilvy's life. He was a total abstainer and a non-smoker, had no recreations except a daily hour in the gymnasium, and had taken a vow of celibacy believing marriage and the care of a family to be incompatible with a 24-hour-a-day devotion to duty. He had no subjects of conversation except the principles of Ingsoc, and no aim in life except the defeat of the Eurasian enemy and the hunting down of spies, saboteurs, thought criminals, and traitors generally. Winston debated with himself whether to award Comrade Ogilvy the order of conspicuous merit. In the end, he decided against it because of the unnecessary cross-referencing that it would entail. Once again, he glanced at his rival in the opposite cubicle. Something seemed to tell him with certainty that Tillotson was busy on the same job as himself. There was no way of knowing whose job would finally be adopted, but he felt a profound conviction that it would be his own. Comrade Ogilvie, imagined an hour ago, was now a fact. It struck him as curious that you could create dead men, but not living ones. Comrade Ogilvie, who had never existed in the present, now existed in the past, and when once the act of forgery was forgotten, he would exist just as authentically and upon the same evidence as Charlemagne or Julius Caesar. "Tis the gift to be simple. tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, To bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.